Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I was so inspired by tonight's show that I wrote a poem. Which oh, I'd a like famous to... Benny poem. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a while, right? So this is dedicated to my friend Miranda, also a very loyal Dan and Benny follower. She was kind enough to, uh, to model our T-shirt on our Facebook page. So here we go. Uh, Dan and Benny in the ring for a year and a half. It's been a thing. Dan talks about bookers, and Benny talks about hookers. Uh-oh, I think I hear the fat lady sing. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I like it, Benny. I like it. It's been a while. It's been you a know, uh, before we get started, Benny, we had uh, this weekend, there was a huge event uh, at our friends at the BWC. So why don't you give them a shout out and we'll, before we get into the show? Yeah, let me, let me uh, do our promo for uh, Dan and Benny in the Ring is brought to you by Boogie's Wrestling Camp, founded in 1992 by wrestling legend Jimmy Valiant and his beautiful wife, Angel. BWC is located in beautiful, majestic Shawsville, Virginia. Uh, whether you want to be a wrestler, manager, announcer, or valet, BWC is the place to be. At BWC, you receive the very best possible training from Jimmy and his amazing staff. You'll learn, you'll learn holes, bumps, <clears throat> psychology, and promos. The cost is just two fifty down and twenty dollars per session, which is ridiculously low, in my opinion. Boogie's Wrestling Campus turned out twenty nine graduating classes. The most notable alumnus being a recent AEW World Champion, Hangman Adam Page. When you join BWC, you're not just joining a, a wrestling school; you become a part of the family. Interested? Visit JimmyValiant.Weebly.com for more information on Boogie's Wrestling Camp. BWC, the ring of dreams, where the dream becomes reality. Tell them Dan and Benny sent you. So. Uh, this past weekend, they had their annual Valiant uh, Cup. It's a battle royal. It's their equivalent of a WrestleMania. And from what I'm told, nobody, everybody went home smiling. A lot of a lot of action, and uh, apparently, uh, so many people were there that they had to uh, use adjoining homes for uh, for parking. So, uh, all around, very successful. I think on Wednesday, uh, Jimmy will uh, reveal more news about his next extravaganza. Absolutely, Judd. Jimmy was posting some some early pictures, packed house, standing room only, and like you said, uh, that was the big big deal. They, they, the turnout was so huge. The local neighborhood people were loaning driveways and and lawns to park in. They just had so many people showing up, which is always incredible, especially this time of year in that building. So, yes, sir. But uh, Benny, we always like to have the unique perspectives here and this is 2022 coming up in the fall uh we're gonna have the 25th anniversary of arguably one of the biggest turning points in the history of modern wrestling in november uh, 1997 at the survivor series in montreal was the infamous montreal screw job and joining us to talk about that we're joined by a man who uh we're gonna have to really sell it for him because he's not really one for self-promotion at all, but um, he's an author, uh, writer, director, actor, producer, YouTube personality, video personality. Anyone who has ever been on a Facebook or fan wrestling site has seen some of his stuff. The, the movie man himself, the wrestling guru himself, trivia master, and we'll get to that in a second too. We're joined by Mike Messier. Mike, thanks so much for being here. 
Hey, Dan, thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, glad to be here with you and Benny uh, in the ring, so to speak. And yes, I do have uh, books. In fact, Benny Scala did the uh, kind of the foreword for my Fighter Play basketball novel. Very kind of Benny to do that. And uh, Benny's name actually comes before mine in the actual text. So <laughs> great. Benny book. goes Recommend over. It to anyone. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's Fighter Play basketball, my young adult sports novel, my gothic horror, A Distance from Avalon. When the Dying and the Dead Reunite. And I just recently uh, did a pro wrestling trivia book that's on Amazon Kindle. So I encourage everyone to And all my social media links are there, mikemessier.com. Good stuff. And uh, usually, Mikey, uh, when we had you on the show last year and before, you were very heavily involved with the Avalonian Film Festival. How's uh, is that? happening again this year or has that already passed well thanks dan yeah number seven's coming up november 5th i just double confirmed the booking it'll be november 5th two to five but the entries are open now uh, for anyone that has a short film etc uh, still photography film posters trailers all types of good stuff uh you can go to film freeway and it's avalonia which is spelled a-v-a-l-o-n-i-a festival yeah thanks for mentioning that we'll be doing number seven this november in jacksonville florida and you you've shared a lot of the clips through the years that's some good stuff that comes out of there so good on you with that one thanks before we get into uh the topic at hand the screw job i want to pick your brain mike on there's two major stories that came out of wrestling in the last few days we're recording this on a monday a rare monday show um friday night uh, on AW Rampage, CM Punk announced that he's injured, and it has since come out that he's going to relinquish the AW title. And Sunday night, last night, was Hell in a Cell. Uh, prior to the show, it was announced that Cody Rhodes had torn his pectoral tendon. And, I mean, I I, I can't describe the picture justice, the, the obvious internal bleeding that he was suffering from during the match um, when he took his jacket off to wrestle. But he did compete. He said he would. Uh, and he's going to need surgery. But I want to start with uh, AEW because in response to CM Punk being injured, legitimately not storyline, uh, he's going to relinquish the title. They're going to have uh, – Tony Khan has announced that this Wednesday they're going to have a battle royale. And the winner will face number one contender – or excuse me, currently ranked number one John Moxley – for uh to create an aw representative new japan pro wrestling is going to have their own event to crown their number one contender and the two of them are going to meet at the upcoming forbidden door pay-per-view to be crowned interim aw champion to hold a title eventually to with whoever the current interim champion is when punk comes back they'll have a unification bring the title now aw recently took some flack for having an interim TNT champion uh, when Cody Rhodes took less than a week off of television. He was uh, he was at inactive for all of about four days, and they were announcing right. new matches and new titles, and then they had two TNT belts for a while, and it got confusing. This is obviously a lot more serious and a bigger event. I'm curious, Mikey, uh, what are your thoughts on, one, uh, Punk's injury, bad timing, but also on how they're handling the interim title? Well, there's never, uh, I guess, it's like a foot injury. In fact, there's a photograph of CM Punk and uh, 
are in the dressing room, presumably after their six-man tag, which is where Punk got hurt. And if you look at the picture closely, you can see that Punk has one boot off. There's, there's six feet in the picture, but Punk's got one boot off. And I'm assuming that he felt the injury. Maybe he didn't have it diagnosed yet. Uh, but yeah, so, and some people were speculating that the injury actually occurred on his way to the ring. Then when he does the stage dive, he jumps into the crowd. Maybe he hurt his foot there. Uh, as far as the interim title, Dan, uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's it's not my favorite. I mean, I kind of am of this school of if you can't defend the title within 30 days, out for real and um, allow a new champion. And back into action, you do a pretty quick build for him to get a, a rematch with the current champion. That's that's my preference if, if I were Booker. But I think one thing that Eric Bischoff always talks about on his podcast is when he was doing Nitro, he didn't want to beat the WWF at their own game. He wanted to do things differently. So if Tony Khan says, hey, let's do interim title titles when people get injured or can't be active like Cody with the TNT thing, it's not necessarily better. It's just different. And if you're trying to do different, we've seen TNA wrestling do a six-sided ring. We've seen all types of things that are different. This is different. It's not my personal favorite, but I can live with it. You know, it's funny you mentioned the barefoot. I didn't even think about that because the uh, the clip that circulated after the commercial break from the promo, the big, the famous promo MJF cut, where CM Punk came out to the ring and MJF bailed through the crowd. It didn't dawn on me until you said something. CM Punk was only wearing one boot and had a barefoot when he came out to the ring. To to after the uh, MJF promo, I guess yeah, he would have been probably already injured at that point. Interesting. Yeah, he probably recognized that his foot was killing him, swelled up or whatever. He didn't want to put a heavy wrestling boot back on a swollen foot, and right. maybe it wasn't until the next morning where where a real doctor took a look at it. You know, we're just kind of j- jumping to conclusions here based on the evidence we have. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, you're right. And I mean, anybody that's ever been hiking or outdoors, you know, they say if you feel your foot swelling, one of the worst things you can do is take your boot off because you'll never be able to get it back on. Right. Right. But now moving from the AW story, because that's going to be interesting. And and I give them credit on the fact that you're going to have an AEW and new Japan superstar competing for the title. So, I mean, intrigue there, it definitely adds a little bit of more flair to the forbidden door pay-per-view, which they announced sold out quick, very quickly. So good for AEW there. Uh, but moving to the other side on the WWE, uh, I shared the picture on the Dan and Benny page last night, Cody Rhodes, uh, competing with a torn pectoral tendon. I can only imagine the pain he was in. So two-part question for you on that one, Benny, or excuse me, uh, on that one for you, Mike. What, one, what are your thoughts on just the, the Nate, how they kind of played the story of the, the, the one-winged angel fighting Satan himself with the evil Seth Rollins, how they kind of worked it into the story. But also, what are your thoughts as someone who's been involved and critical of wrestling in the past of, someone in his physical condition wrestling anyway. 
Great questions, Dan. Well, let's start with the commentary first, um, because you asked that first. Corey Graves was really the star of the commentary for that uh, premium event, as they call them now. And Corey was the one that made the one-winged angel and going to fight Satan. And, and, and Corey, I'm not a big fan of who I call tattoo neck on commentary, but he did shine last night. I'll give him credit. So I, I give credit to Corey Graves that he did a great job um, telling us. As far as Cody actually wrestling, a lot of different thoughts. First of all, in any sane, any was you wouldn't have a guy out there like that. Maybe in the sixties, NFL, because those guys would you know play with broken fingers or whatever. But um, I don't think that would pass muster these days. And I'm not. But you know, Cody um, has something to prove. I mean, I think he's trying to be the number one guy in the sport. And for him to come back to WWE is an indication of that. Uh, he didn't like how things were going in AEW, either with literally the fan response or the money or whatever. So he, he made some sacrifices and he came back to WWE. And I, I think the storyline is that he wants the title that his father never won, the WWF title or the WWE title now. But I think the reality is not so much a title, it's I want to be the number one guy in the sport. And last night he was, because Cody was there, and a person who wasn't there was Roman Reigns. You know, if, if Roman Reigns was more of a team player, uh, I'm sure he found out about the pectoral injury, you know, Roman Reigns, that, that is. He could have picked up the phone and told Vince or told Triple H or told Stephanie or whoever, hey, tell Cody to take the night off. I'll take his place in the cell. We'll make a defense versus Rollins rematch from the Royal Rumble where Reigns got disqualified and they never had a rematch. So uh, if you had a leader in your company, like uh, if Roman Reigns had stepped up, uh, Cody wouldn't have to be in there asking, uh, in risk for complications. Uh, what I have heard from Brian Perez to give him uh, once again, it's speculation. Because the muscle was torn off, once the muscle is gone, it, it, there's nothing further that can be made worse. So if Seth and Cody kind of doing so that Cody really didn't than he already was um that could be the justification hey pictorial muscles already uh, torn off the bone you're gonna have to have the surgery you're gonna be on the shelf anyway but you can somehow get through this one match i think the physical uh coloration of his pictorial i mean th this is how i know it's not fair uh if you watch the end of the match when they're trying to lift up cody's arm and there's actually a moment that I saw where the, the redness, the, which is basically blood coming through his chest, it actually, like I'm, I'm watching it and it's like a, a spot of red pops in and that's not a special effect or, or makeup magically doing that. That's real blood vessels, you know, bursting in front of us. So a tip of the hat to Cody. Uh, he is a tough guy. He's got big uh, shoes to fill from the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. It's interesting how Dustin Rhodes' career has gone. 
Uh, but Cody Rhodes has done a lot in his career, and he's, I think he's less than 40 years old. What do you think, Benny? This is the sec only the, they said only the second time, uh, or excuse me, let me rephrase that, since uh, this is to be the second pay-per-view in a row where there was no title match. Uh, the the last time that happened was 2017. What do you think about Mikey's point that Cody, even with Roman Reigns, that Cody Rhodes last night became the biggest star in the company? God, and I, 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 my respect for Cody Rhodes has gone up tremendously because of what he did. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan, and all you hear every day is you know people are going on the IL with a hangnail for uh, two weeks. And here you have, I mean, it looked literally looked like somebody taped an eggplant to, to Cody Rhodes' chest. That's how horribly disfigured it was. And I've, you know, I, I've been into weightlifting for a number of years, and I've seen some torn pecs. That was one of the worst things I've ever seen. And the guy, the guy, pure guts. And, I mean, he didn't have to do that, but, he, you know, he, his dedication and his passion. I mean, how could you not respect a guy like that? You, you, you always find ways to sneak baseball into the Always. show Benny is this is this Cody's uh, bloody sock moment <laughs> did he get no I don't know if he got in the Hall of Fame or not Kurt Schilling I don't I don't think he did Cody's gonna get in the Hall of Fame though oh yeah absolutely I, I did like the nice touch of Rollins wearing the polka dots right. kind of rubbing it in yeah. a little bit I thought that was great stuff couldn't bring Sapphire back though <laughs> no not but I I don't know kind of what we were talking about Benny before uh, uh, Benny and Mike before the show. I don't know if a character like her would fly in today's world. No, I you know, especially, so. especially the storyline of her turning on, turning on dusty after a rich man buys her. So I don't know if, if, if owning, owning uh, <laughs> ethnic, yeah, ethnic yeah. manservants and, and, and people is, is something that the 21st century yeah. wrestling would, would give the thumbs up on. But injuries are plenty, fun stories are plenty. But main topic we wanted to get to tonight, Mikey, we wanted to pick your brain and talk about sure. it. It's uh, we're coming up on 25 years of the Montreal Screwjob, and obviously, I think it's 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 something that's come up a lot, especially AEW with uh, the Owen Hart tournament and a lot of the involvement. The the Hart name has kind of come to the foyer of wrestling again. Uh, hopefully, the the honors for heart stay just in tournament form and maybe the occasional ring attire because um all the respect in the world to people wanting to honor the legacy but i have seen some of the worst looking sharpshooters i've ever seen in my life the last <laughs> few weeks and and maybe yeah, leave that to the heart family leave, leave that to the heart family we can honor them other ways but we got to get the obvious out of the way. It's it came up during the Dark Side of the Ring episode. It's come up in podcasts and interviews before. Uh, Scott Hall was probably one of the most prominent advocates for it. Uh, Vince Russo's had his opinions, as Eric Bischoff and others. So, Mike, your thoughts? Um, Montreal Screwjob, hundred percent real, or was there any shoot involved to it? Oh, you mean as a work or shoot, basically? Basically, uh, yeah. In, in a in other words, was Bret Hart in on the work? I think is what you're saying. Yes. It was was Bret Hart part of a, a a conspiracy to create a fictional thing in order to get Bret out of a contract? I don't believe so. I think I think the conspiracy, so so to speak, is kind of what the story's been given to us. Sean, I think Pat Patterson, Vince, Triple H, and uh, maybe at some point the ref Hebner 
uh, basically had this little plan. Uh, and I don't think they told Jim Ross or Lawler about it either. And they went out there and they did their little plan because, um, and, and I can go into some nuances with this too, that I think will be good because I think a lot of people kind of, kind of put the blame on Brett. And I don't think so because Brett had said that Sean in the dressing room at one point said, uh, Brett, I want you to know that I'll never put you over in the middle of the ring. And that apparently that happened a couple of months before the Montreal screw job. And so Brett felt like if this guy would never put me over, why should I put him over after he already had put him over at WrestleMania 12? So kind of some diva ish behavior between the two of them that year, you know, 1997 was a very exciting year for pro wrestling. WCW was actually doing better than the WWE with the NWO and Hogan and sting and all that good stuff. And the WWF uh, put a lot of emphasis on Steve Austin, uh, the Calgary Stampede pay-per-view where Austin and, and uh, the 10 man tag and everything. But Austin was hurt at SummerSlam 97 in August. So by the time we get to Survivor Series 97, they did bring back Austin on that show. He beat Owen Hart for the Intercontinental title. But we still, when I say we, the WWF didn't really know what they had in Steve Austin. They didn't know if he could take bumps ever again. It was like a trial by fire for, for Austin's neck. So they didn't have their, they were very concerned that if Austin is touchy, he's the number one guy in our company, but he might be injured for the rest of his career and may not have much of a career left. Uh, and then they don't, in Vince's mind, they didn't have the money to pay Brett. Uh, what are we going to do here? And the answer for, for Vince was to go back to Shawn Michaels. And at the time, everybody respected the fact that Shawn Michaels was having great performances. But I think Bret Hart, for my own taste, had better matches. I think Sean made himself look great. I think Brett made himself and his opponents look great. That's the difference. But for whatever reason, uh, Junior, as I call him, McMahon, had a real thing for Shawn Michaels, which uh, he continued to have for years on end. And he wanted that belt on Sean, so he got the belt on Sean. You know, there, there's been other screw jobs. You know, go back to 1963, Madison Square Garden, May 17th. Buddy Rogers thought Bruno was going to, you know, do the job. In a, a, but au contraire, you know, Bruno beat him, I think, in 47 seconds. Um, you know, Wendy Richter got screwed by Vince Jr. With, uh, the, with Moolah for the title. So there's been other screw jobs. What makes this one so uh, significant? Is it because it's the latest one? And, you know, now we have the advent of social media. And that's why we're talking about it more. Or is it, you know, is it more significant than, than the other ones? I'll have an answer for that, Benny, and I think it's it's pretty uh, pretty easy to say because we a good portion of people saw it live as it happened. That's the answer. If if Moolah and Wendy Richter would have happened on say MTV in 1985, that might have been a bigger story because that match was taped and shown like on Saturday morning a couple of days later, or a couple of weeks later. Um, and no offense, but at the time the women's title was not as big a deal as it is now. Right. Uh, that was kind of just something we saw that we didn't really think about too much, I guess. Um, but I think because it was on a pay-per-view and wrestling was getting really, I mean, WCW was number one. 
uh, WWF was number two. ECW was trailing behind at number three. But as far as like the pop culture world where you had South Park, you had Howard Stern private parts movie coming out. You had DX, you know, suck it. Everything was very edgy. Uh, you know what I mean? Limp Biscuit, to Beavis and Butthead. All this stuff was very edgy. And Shawn Michaels and DX and Triple H all fell into that. And Brett was kind of old school by comparison. Although Brett had some edginess to his character in 97 because of the Canada thing. Overall, Bret Hart, at least to Vince, I think, represented the old way of doing things. And Sean, uh, although he was injured soon enough come January of 98 against The Undertaker, Sean to Vince was the new school. And that's the way that Vince wanted this thing to go. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, now, Mike, let me ask you to expand on that for a second. In you talked about the the WCW number one. Uh, obviously, ECW's rise was still big. That there was a shift in edginess. You, you South Park, a great example. The Howard Stern that hit his rise, great example. I mean, you had some some television and movie moments. There was kind of a shift. The the young adult crowd, the PG thirteen. You know, the kind of the kind of I hate to say it, but people that are today in their late thirties to, to mid forties, that, that dominant age group, the, the big, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the generation X. Yes. Thank you. The, uh, that, you know, um, if it is, it was, it kind of a, a force of its time in that if, if you had still had the new generation crowd and, and the old eighties crowd and, uh, you looked at the the old territory tapes, Benny. We've mentioned it so many times on the show. Where you know half the front row is older people, and of course, you know the 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 older women swinging their canes at Jim Cornette and and ready to jump over the the, the guardrail and help whoever's beating up Ricky Morton. That crowd would never have accepted the the screw job the way it played off. Do you think it was kind of a, a a shifting of the demographics, not, not defending Vince's actions, saying his hand was forced, but do you think it was, it was the shifting of demographics that made it a much easier decision? Yeah. Great point, Dan. I think so. I mean, I think it wasn't too long after the screw job. I think it was a couple of weeks actually where Vince did the famous, you know, canary yellow suit. Uh, we're not going to insult our audience. We're now edgier uh, promo. If you remember that it's a famous, straight to camera promo that Vince did that was after Survivor Series 97 and before the next pay-per-view which was the DX pay-per-view I mean there you go right there the next pay-per-view after uh, Survivor Series 97 I'm sure it was booked you know at least six weeks in advance it was in your house DX so I mean they're already planning on a, on a pay-per-view that's named after these guys Shawn Michaels uh, Tr Triple H in China you know what I mean so I think it was the click. I mean, we, we haven't really gone there, but, but Kevin Nash, who, of course, you know, I've worked with in the movie The Manor that I co-wrote, but Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall, rest in peace, great, great wrestler, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, uh, Sean Waltman, a.k.a. Six, a.k.a. the One Two Three Kid, the kid, uh, and, and, and Hunter, Shawn Michaels, you know, that was the click. And even though that Scott and, and Nash and I think Waltman were all gone by Survivor Series 97, 
the click still had a lot of power in pro wrestling. And I think Vince McMahon was kind of enamored or impressed or whatever with these guys. And I think when he saw the repercussions of when Nash and Hall left the company, he really didn't want to lose Sean, especially, or Hunter. And when there was an opportunity to get Waldman back, he, he took Waldman back, you know, a few months later. So I think, I think Vince was convinced that the click, the more click guys he had on his side of the fence for WWF, the better. Uh, he had two out of five. A couple of months later, he'd have three out of five. And then when WCW, you know, went out of business and Vince got uh, Hall and Nash back, he had all five again. So I, I think that could have been part of it that we haven't really talked about a whole lot. Mike, a very large part of the debate is who who was in on it and who wasn't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rip off a couple of names here and let me know if uh, Jr. was Jr. in on it. I don't think so. No. I agree with you. I, I I've heard a lot of the big reason why was because. He was the director of talent relations, and I think Vince thought that, that if he if the boys thought he was in on it, it would completely destroy his credibility. So I'm with yeah. you on that one. How about uh, Patterson? Do you think he was? I think, yeah, I think Patterson was one of the ones that helped book most of their main events, and I think Patterson was in on this. And uh, I believe Triple H actually took credit for the idea of the swerve coming with the uh, the sharpshooter, and and I think Patterson was in on that. Yeah. So I think Patterson was a part of it, Benny. How about uh, Cornette or Pritchard? No, nah, I don't think so. I think, I think those guys were kind of like outside the inner circle. And if anything, they probably, especially Cornette, uh, but also Pritchard being old school, they may not have trusted those guys completely to not go back to Brett. So I'd say no on both counts. Same with uh, Russo. Uh, yeah. Vince Russo, I don't think was part of, um, Booking like match results or, or match endings, that was never Russo's strong point, especially not in WWF. Now, how about I heard that Gerald Briscoe actually was in on it, only if for the, the, the point of trying to uh, teach um, HBK how to defend himself if uh, Brett started shooting on him. I, I've heard that as well. And it could have been, you know, I think you, one of your guys on Pro Wrestling Stories wrote about the sugar hold. The sugar hold with Bob Roop, right? So I think I think that probably has some credence that Gerald Briscoe or Jerry Briscoe, as he used to be known as a wrestler, uh, former NWA World Tag Team Champion with his older brother Jack. I think Jerry Briscoe most likely did step in and, and tell Sean, hey, if you get in trouble, do this. So I think that's quite a possibility. I, I agree with that. Do you think any of the other boys were in on it? Any, any of the guys? The wrestlers? I think just Triple H. Triple H. I, I think tri Triple H and possibly if he told Joni or or um, they, they called you know China. I think she showed up at ringside. I don't think Rick Rude did uh, because Rude was officially still part of uh, DX that night. A lot of people forget that Rick Rude was kind of the heater for DX. He couldn't wrestle mm -hmm. because of his back, but he was there in a suit. But uh, apparently Rude was so disgusted that's why he left. WWF and whatever back to WCW, um, which was one of the many ramifications from this thing. Um, yeah, so I, I just think it was Hunter, uh, Gerald Briscoe, Pat Patterson, Vince McMahon, uh, the referee Hebner. I think I think that was, and maybe maybe China, maybe Joni, if Triple H told her. But I could see, I could see Triple H. You know. 
Well, let me ask you to go again, expanding. Uh, the stories, especially some of the backstage interviews that came from the Dark Side of the Ring episode on the screw job, if word had kind of gotten out, for lack of a better description, in the back, you know, Undertaker and some of the more senior no no BS guys, is there any kind of a locker room mutiny? Does does this if if word gets out that this is what McMahon's planning, does it still happen, or is this one of those things where maybe Sean gets beat up in the back and doesn't even get to the ring? Like, you know, what are your thoughts if if word gets out? How how would you how do you see it playing out? Well, from what I understand, the Undertaker Mark Callis has said that he wishes that Vince had gone to him. Uh, meaning the Undertaker, because the Undertaker was starting to become, uh, and I think they even said that this incident, once Brett was gone, Undertaker was by default, if nothing else, the guy in the locker room, the locker room leader. Uh, but before this, th- this is kind of the catalyst to put Undertaker on that marquee because Brett actually had a longer tenure than Undertaker. Um, I think if, man, that's a good question. I mean, I think that a guy like, well, Mick Foley apparently uh, stayed home for a night after this whole thing happened. He didn't go to Mick Foley didn't go to Raw the next night because he was so disgusted. Rick Rude went home after, uh, you know, whatever the, the next Raw, because I think Rude appeared on one more Monday Night Raw. And then he left in disgust and called Eric Bischoff and said, can you put me back on the WCW payroll? I can't stand to be here with these guys. Um, so there was some repercussions, you know, Davy Boy Smith. And Jim Neidhart, for what it's worth, they ended up leaving as well. That kind of gets under, you know, forgotten about. But they were pretty strong talents. I mean, here's another part of the story that we forget. The timing of it was really pretty bad because less than a month earlier, Brian Pillman had passed away. I mean, people forget that Brian Pillman died the same night as the Ground Zero in Your House pay-per-view that had uh, Sean versus Undertaker in the first ever Hell in the Cell in Kane's debut. Well, that's the same day that Brian Pillman was found dead. And less than a month later is the Survivor Series 97, which was very early in the year for Survivor Series. If you look at the date, I believe it was November 9th, 1997. We're typically used to seeing the Survivor Series much closer to uh, Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. you know, two or three weeks later. So it's just kind of interesting that the Bret Hart character was so powerful. That was, I was watching both companies at the time, but I can't believe it's been 25 years, man. That's crazy. But I can remember pretty vividly that 1997 was one of the best years for pro wrestling as a pro wrestling fan. If you had cable TV, if you could afford the pay-per-views or you could split them with your friends, or some people had what I call the black box cable network, uh, you could watch all this great wrestling. Uh, WCW, ECW, WWF, and just tons of great wrestling. Uh, and this Bret Hart, uh, he had a hell of a great year. I mean, he wrestled on that Terry Funk uh, retirement show, one of Terry Funk's 100 retirement matches. You know what I mean? So, I mean, Bret just had an awesome 97. And to me, it's a shame that it went out with a whimper like that in WWF. And even more of a shame... Uh, how he was used at Starcade 97 as a ref for the Larry Zabisco Eric Bischoff match. So um, I'm not sure if I answered your question or if I just answered 20 other ones, Dan, but it does get me riled up thinking about this stuff. I, I was okay. Here's the point I wanted to make. If I was the booker, if I could create a time machine, this is what I would have done. 
The Undertaker did not wrestle on that show. On the Survivor Series 97, The Undertaker does not have a match. As far as I know, he was not injured, right? So what they could have done, and you kind of alluded to it, uh, Dan, a few minutes ago, they could have done a batch backstage segment where they show Shawn Michaels lying on the concrete in a pool of his own blood. And then they show like a, a boot in the blood. And it's like the Undertaker's boot print in the blood. And then they, they have Brett out there for the main event. They introduce, like maybe they play Shawn's music. He doesn't come out. Then they play Brett's music. He comes out. And then Brett's waiting for the challenger for Shawn. And then the lights dim. And then bong. And then the Undertaker comes out. And they have an impromptu title match, Brett versus The Undertaker. The ref calls for the, the bell, and, and Undertaker beats Brett for the with Sean putting over Austin at Mania in 98. They could have easily transitioned to having that title change at the DX uh, pay-per-view a, a month later, or even at the Royal Rumble in January. They could have had Sean beat The Taker and gone right to Sean versus Austin. And I think The Undertaker was kind of alluding when he talked about this, that that's what he was kind of pissed about because he thought, uh, which, you know, that's typical wrestler thing. How can I get involved in this? But I think The Undertaker had a good point. His character was really the only person that could have pulled this off, meaning The Undertaker's. Uh, Austin, as popular as Austin was, they wanted to save his title victory for Mania. And once again, they didn't know the extent of his injuries to his neck. You know what I mean? He was he was really touch and go. So there's some more thoughts for you. I like it. Well, let me ask you then. You you talked about winners. Are are there any other? You mentioned Bret Hart's career. Are there any losers in this? I mean, McMahon goes on to become Vince Jr. goes on to become the Mister McMahon character. The Bret screwed Bret. The you talked about the yellow suit where he straight up admitted wrestling is fake and we're not going to insult you by pretending to be real anymore. And and you know, uh, I mean, Hart Bret Hart went on to WCW and made a fortune. Unfortunately, like you said, he was kind of very poorly booked. Uh, just kind of fell through the cracks of the 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 BS that was the backstage WCW HBK goes on to be remembered as one of the greatest singles performers in wrestling history. I mean, is there anyone other than maybe Bret Hart? You mentioned being wasted in WCW that, that comes out of this worse for wear. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the list is basically Bret Hart. And, and uh, if you really want to be, you know, uh, what's that term butterfly effect about this? You could even say Owen Hart. You could make a case that if Bret Hart had stayed with the WWF through 99, and if Owen had expressed to Bret he wasn't comfortable with uh, doing the, uh, the from the ceiling stuff with the blue blazer outfit, that Bret would have enough uh, locker room clout to get Owen out of that situation. So, I mean, that's real butterfly effect stuff. That's If this happened, then this would have happened, or that wouldn't have happened, or whatever. But, I mean, I think without... Brett being there is kind of the brother, you know, with all the clout. Owen was kind of more uh, privy to being manipulated by these guys. And unfortunately, Owen paid the ultimate price. Uh, and I think Brett ended up paying the ultimate price of his career because he goes over to WCW, as you said. They didn't book him very well. 
they started to get going with him with a couple of world title runs and stuff. And then unfortunately he has that match with Goldberg and he gets, you know, kicked in the head and the concussion and so forth. So, uh, who else would have been a victim? I mean, you can make a case that Davy Boy Smith was a victim. You know, Davy Boy and Jim the Anvil Neidhart, like I said, they kind of left. You know, WWF ended up in WCW as kind of a mid-card tag team. And apparently Davy Boy somehow got injured uh, in a ring, had like a trap door for the Ultimate Warrior to pop out of. And Warrior had said that Davy Boy was probably on some type of pain medications or something himself but in any event Davy Boy uh, came out kind of worse for wear although he didn't stop wrestling he had another run with him in 99 in WWF so uh, I would I would really say that who suffered the most I think is is the Hart family you know, to put a, a period on that Mike I'm going to ask you a question I'm going to answer it first but I'm I'm very curious to what your opinion and is and and that is who's really at fault here? I, I think Brett takes a lot of undue heat as being the catalyst, uh, only because you know people have always said he took himself too seriously. You know he he didn't want to drop the title in Canada, which I mean that has some merit. My my theory is that I mean I think Vince was at fault, and the reason why I say that is you know Vince had offered Brett a very nice contract. Which, you know, Brett, because Brett wanted to stay. Brett didn't want to leave. And I, apparently when Vince presented Brett with the contract, uh, it was a little bit different than what they had agreed to. And, you know, Brett's attorney saw it, said, you know, this is bullshit. And then Vince came back with the contract that they had originally agreed upon. Brett signs it. Now he's got a nice deal there. I mean, not making as much per year as WCW, but he's got, what, it was like a 20-year contract. So... And then what? Three weeks later, McMahon says he can't honor the contract. Who does? Who does that? I mean, that's really shitty business. So, in in my mind, you know, if if McMahon had just honored the contract, that we wouldn't be having this debate. Well, Benny, you know, I'm I'm actually not to say you took the words out of my mouth, but that was what I was going to bring up too, which is how come when wrestlers, you know, we, we see it even now with Sasha Banks and Naomi for their women's tag team title. How come when wrestlers have an issue creatively and they, you know, supposedly breach their deal or breach their contract, how come the wrestling community holds the wrestlers accountable, but no one besides yourself, me, and and maybe Dan as well, uh, have held Vince to the fact that he broke his word. You know, Vince, who who always claims he's the, the handshake deal guy and his word is his bond and all this good stuff. Uh, how come, no one holds Vince to the fire that he, he wasn't doing that with Brett. And I, I know that the response for WWE apologists would be that uh, Vince uh, couldn't afford to keep Brett. So he was doing what he had to do to keep his company in business. Okay, fine, maybe. But how do we under, how do we get to the point where, you know, two months later, you're booking Mike Tyson to be a referee at WrestleMania and a couple of TV show appearances and you're giving him a million dollars for, for less than a half a dozen appearances. How, how, do, how do you justify a million dollars for Mike Tyson and not a, you know, honoring Brett's contract? It's, it's pick and choose morality. It's pick and choose uh, business morality. And I think, you know, this, this is one of the cracks in the WWF, WWE history 
where people like myself that are a bit disgruntled with WWE, especially at the ownership level, this is one of the things that we cite where ownership was less than upfront with their employees, perhaps less than upfront with their fans. And uh, they got away with it because they always seem to get away with it. But I mean, I could see if like, say two years later after the contract and Vince goes back to Brett and says, Hey Brett, you know what? Uh, I, I just can't pay you. I mean, I'm losing my ass here, but it was like three weeks. What happens in three weeks? Yeah. You know, the other thing, the other funny thing, Benny and Dan is that, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but circulating on the internet is a Vince McMahon letter to ultimate warrior, Jim Helwig, the ultimate warrior after the survivor series 97, making a very, uh, detailed, uh, offer for the ultimate warrior to come back in late 97 uh for like a three-year contract and it was like we're gonna start over pal and it, it won't be like it was last time you know referencing 96 and 92 for warrior because like i said i think that austin injury if austin had not been you know pile drove on his neck um not to say none of this would never happen but i think vince was really desperate uh in, at least in his own mind things creatively that could have been done you know they could have easily put the undertaker into that match and had undertaker beat brett brett says that he would have put anybody else over uh, but sean he would have put he would have put austin over if they wanted him to he would have put undertaker over he would have put shamrock over he would have put uh, brooklyn brawler over for the title you know i would have liked but i think that, that would have been cute i think the thing is brett just brett was holding on to this grudge that he put over uh, Michaels at WrestleMania 12. Michaels, apparently, right after the match happened, Michaels told the referee to, you know, get that piece of trash out of my ring or some such thing, meaning Brett. And uh, Brett felt disrespected by, by Sean. And Brett claims that Sean said, I won't put you over in the ring. So I, I, from my perspective, I do feel that Brett was justified. I feel that he got the short end of the stick. It's lied to him like he lies to a lot of people. And uh, there you have it. I mean, and from his perspective, meaning Brett's perspective, I mean, the guy just gets a 20-year contract that makes him, you know, rich beyond his wildest dreams and provides security for his family for the rest of his life. You know, three weeks later, McMahon yanks it out from under him. If I'm him, it's like, why would I do anything for McMahon? Great point. You know, just Brett being there at all. I mean, I, I also wonder, Benny and Dan, like, if Brett did have lawyers in his corner, why couldn't they enforce the contract? I mean, these wrestling contracts, I mean, who was that the name of the politician who was uh, up in arms about the uh, WWE contracts with wrestlers? But I oh, mean, uh, if you talk, you're, you're talking about uh, Andrew Yang. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, if you're if this, this is how come they're independent contractors when you need them to be independent contractors for the for the tax man, but when it's you know Sasha and Naomi really want to be independent and they want to figure out their own bookings for this women's tag team title, or when you know Brett doesn't want to put over a guy that said he wouldn't put over him, meaning Brett, uh, meaning Sean, uh, how come they're not independent then? It's it's independent when they're uh, de 
they're trying to get away with something from the tax man, but when it's, we want to tell you what to do and you do it, no matter what we say, then suddenly they're not independent. They're, they're, then they're employees who are hired to do their choreographed wrestling matches that they have eight hours to work out, right? I so would it's, say it's that just, Vince has far more control over an independent contractor than any employer has over their employees. Right. And uh, Jesse Ventura's talked about this. Yang, the politician Yang's talked about this. Who's the guy, John Oliver? Yeah, uh, the H- last the H- week H- tonight, he did an entire segment on it. Yeah, he did an entire episode, really, yeah. like a 22-minute episode on WWF. And I recently, you know, I have YouTube on in the background most of the time, so that recently came up in the cycle again in my YouTube stuff that I was watching. And I mean, it's it's true. And here's the other thing, guys. We're all wrestling fans, you know, as much as I complain about the WWE. I watched the Celtics game last night, but I watched the WWE uh, pay-per-view this morning where, you know, the Hell in the Cell. I skipped through a few of the matches that were boring to me, but I did watch it, you know, because I want to see what happened. So as much as we complain about WWE and McMahon and everything else, we're still watching, and that's why they're still in business. You know, the, the pro wrestling fan who wants to, and I'm putting myself in this category too, but we put out, we, we complain about things like Owen Hart's death, uh, Jimmy Snuka uh, uh, probably getting away with murder. Uh, you know what I mean? The, suppose Snuka in his own book said that McMahon gave a suitcase to the police and suddenly the investigation was over to that lady's uh, death. So, I mean, we, we know the stories, uh, the Mel Phillips stuff, all the scummy stuff with the Ring Boys scandal from, you know, the early 90s. I mean, you watch some of these old WWF things on YouTube and you hear Gorilla Monsoon openly joking about the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. So, I mean, if they're, if they're openly joking about that, Terry Garvin being accused of some illegal stuff with the Ring Boys, they're openly making fun of that on these classic WWF shows that were aired every Saturday morning. If they're making fun of it, it goes to show that they probably knew something was going on, right? Otherwise, why are they making fun of it? You know, they're making a lot of double entendres about some of the preliminary wrestlers that they say were the uh, Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. So uh, my point is, until the wrestling fan, and I think most wrestling fans are somewhat moral and somewhat good people, but probably are. But unless the fans start saying, you know what, we can't support this company that treats humanity like this and has such a low integrity, uh, no matter how much money they put into, uh, you know, don't be a bully, be a star, while still taking money from the Saudi Arabian Sports Authority that, uh, you know, executed more s- civilians than any other country in one day. I mean, such hypocrisies with the WWE, but also also the hypocrisies with me and you guys and everybody else that continues to watch this company because we want our candy, you know, every couple of weeks or a couple of days we want our wwe production values we want our big larger than life characters we want to watch it maybe just to bitch about it but we're still watching it which keeps them in business well you know it's funny it kind of rolls back to what we were talking about at the top of the hour i was i was very interested in in watching cody's hell in a cell match with seth uh, but i i have peacock for other streaming reasons i couldn't tell you the last time i've sat USA or Fox and watched a Raw or SmackDown. 
Um, if Cody wasn't on the card, I wouldn't have even had it on in the background. And that's, I think, the saddest thing is, uh, like, at, at random side story for a second, I was working on some projects, uh, and I had my phone propped up, and WrestleMania was on in the background. And I was message. I happened to mention mention to a friend of mine. I was like, "Here I am. WrestleMania is on in the background while I'm doing something else." I used to be the guy that would invite everybody over and I'll get the pay-per-view at my house, chips, wings, you know, and, and here we are not a few years later and I'm so uninterested. It's on in the background and I couldn't even tell you everything that happened because I was paying that little attention. Uh, the product is kind of soured, but I'm curious, you talked about the bad things McMahon was doing. Then let me ask you, I guess Benny mentioned the contract and you talked about the contract. So Vince's call to prop to poverty, would you, you would say that was bullshit. I mean, or excuse me, BS in, uh, uh, they, the 97, they had, uh, almost 40% increase in attendance from 96, uh, fiscal year 98, they turned a profit, which was the you know, huge news. Cause they had been hemorrhaging money the previous years when he tells Brett, I can't afford your contract. Is that legitimately, wow. I offered you more money than I think we were ready for because we didn't have a backup plan with Austin. Or is that, you know, Vince McMahon firing people, massive layoffs during, during the pandemic and, 90 days later announcing the largest quarter profit in company history. Is that, that level of, is that, that the Vince McMahon that told Brett, I can't afford you. I think that's the latter. I would say good and good, good, uh, good analysis of the past and the present. Dan, because I think that conveniently when Vince wants to sing the poor boy blues, he sings the poor boy blues, but when he wants to do an article with the New Yorker or, you know, cigar aficionado or HBO, and he wants to claim how great they're doing, then he'll claim how great they're doing. But but when he wants to sing the poor boy blues, he sings the poor boy blues. Same thing with how Junior uh, painted himself as the victim in the Monday Night Wars, that he was up against billionaire Ted, and he's fighting this, you know, huge media conglomerate, just his small little mom and pop business that was worth $7 million when he bought it for a million from his dying father. So I think man is a carny. Uh, you know, he's a great carny, uh, but he's a carny. And um, I like carnies. You know, I mean, look, Vince McMahon's voice is a part of the fabric of our childhood, of our teens, our 20s, our adulthood. I mean, when you hear Vince McMahon talking about wrestling, whether it's commentary or in the Mr. McMahon character, Typically, you pay attention uh, because he does command that respect because he's been doing this for so long. But the other thing is that for people like myself that remember the Georgia Championship Wrestling days and the battle for TBS and AWA, you know, having Hulkamania first, but then Vince takes Hogan and puts the belt on him from the Sheik. For those of us that kind of lived through that era of the death of the territories, I don't think any of us legitimate wrestling fans put Vince Jr. on a pedestal as some great guy. He might be a great promoter, but he's not a great guy. You know what I mean? So uh, it is what it is. I mean, a lot of these wrestlers, the modern day wrestlers I take issue with, uh, even the late China in her was, was saying how Vince McMahon was like a father figure to her. Mick Foley has said 
just as much. You know, Vince Jim Ross, who's like three or four years younger than Vince McMahon, has said that Vince McMahon is like a father figure. My, my one of my pro wrestling rants for the people that have never seen me before. I have these pro wrestling rants on my subscribe to Mike Messi YouTube channel, and one of my rants, uh, Dan, was um, pro wrestlers have a father figure complex to Vince McMahon, and I think the fans also have a father figure complex to Vince McMahon. And I think the more modern day WWE NXT fans have that same father figure complex to Triple H. And so do the wrestlers. Uh, and it just goes to show that a lot of people in the wrestling business, along with entertainment of all kinds, are broken people, people that are looking for validation, uh, people that might, I always say that with actors, not even talking about wrestlers, but with actors, but apply it to wrestlers too. A lot of actors and wrestlers have gotten mommy's hug, but they haven't gotten daddy's pat on the back. So what a guy with a big personality like Vince McMahon and a big uh, way to pay people money for being wrestlers, he takes on that father figure role to these wayward souls who need that. Well, there you have it. Uh, Mikey, as we wrap up... Um... I know we can't help but thank you for your time. I mean, you, you've been a friend of the show since the beginning. Uh, it's not the first time we've had you on. We'll definitely have you back. Uh, Benny, as we wrap up, any any final thoughts, questions, anything like that? Uh, I, I think it's uh, whether you like McMahon or not. I mean, he created a controversy that 25 years later we're still talking about. Yeah. twenty. You know, it's funny. You think about it. This is 25 years later. McMahon offered Bret Hart a 20-year contract, which they signed and negotiated in 1996, 1997. So if Bret Hart fulfills his obligation, he only retired five years ago. Yeah. Well, if I could, Dan, just to clarify a little bit, I believe that 20-year plan was like 10 more years of wrestling and then like five years of on-air personality and Five years of behind the scenes and like a, it, a, it, it was, a legend. Of course, contract. yeah. Bret Bret Hart would right. be the one coming out to break up the fights between, uh, you know, when the Shield <laughs> debuted. He'd be, you know, Bret Bret Hart and and uh, uh, I mean, so you think about some of some of the promo, um producers at the time. You would have had he, Bret Hart and Dean Malenko he, and he'd Arne be a well paid Tony Gurria. Yeah, the the you, you mentioned putting over the Brooklyn Brawler. Steve Lombardi was one of the senior tenured right. backstage producers before he left the company. So. You know, um, I, I just saw I know you don't watch Raw, but I did see they had this Cody Rhodes, Seth Rollins pull apart thing. And they had the pull apart, you know, guys in suits, the random people in suits. And uh, Kurt Henning's son, Joe Henning, uh, who wrestled as uh, Martin and Curtis WWE. Axel. Curtis Axel. Yeah, thank you. Uh, he was out there and the guy looks like he's 30 or 35 years old. And I'm thinking, man, it was like it was more like two or three years ago, but it, it felt like two months ago that I was watching this guy and Bo Dallas win the WWE tag team titles as like some type of you know underdog team, right? Yeah, the, and they the, were get the B team. Yeah, literally, literally team. that's yes. what they were called. Yeah, right, and but, you know what? I my <laughs> wife and I went to a SmackDown about five years ago or so when it was here in Norfolk and the B team was super, I mean, insanely over. They, 
they they came out and had a match against um heavy machinery when they were just coming oh, up yeah. to the main roster about four or five years ago and the b team was super over like it, it's one of those things where you just the natural talent and charisma you get over on your own even though you know you're going nowhere you know well i mean and, and to me dan i mean i'm glad you articulated that because i remember like the, both of those guys were being misused you know, Bo Dallas is the brother of Bray Wyatt and the, the son of Mike Rotundo and, and, you know, the, the grandson of Blackjack Mulligan, the nephew of Barry and Kendall Wyndham. And Bo Dallas, for whatever reason, although he seemed in many ways to be just as good as his older brother Bray, he's getting buried. Curtis Axel had an intercontinental title run for, for a cup of coffee, and he's mm-hmm. getting buried. And uh, here we are just, what, three or four years later, and I'm seeing this clip on Monday Night Raw, and the guy's 30 or 35 years old wearing a suit, breaking up other wrestlers. He's probably younger than Cody so and Seth, to be honest with you. So, I mean, as great as, as the WK in, in some points, they had a great WrestleMania there. Uh, they had a great performance by Cody last night. As great as they can be when they want to be, a lot of times they don't seem to know what the heck What was that last part, Mikey? You broke up at the end there. Oh, I said I, I was. I was just saying the WWE had a great WrestleMania 2022, a great two night WrestleMania, right? And right. this this Hell in the Cell pay per view. Although for me, the women's title match was really the only other really good match on the show besides Cody and Seth. But my point is the WWE when they want to, when they choose to, when they work hard they can put on some pretty damn good entertainment in pro wrestling medium, or they call it sports entertainment or wrestling or whatever. The WWE, when they put their mind to it, can still do a good show. What frustrates myself and probably other fans is that they don't always seem to choose to do the entertaining stuff. Sometimes they choose to do the crap and, and, and treat people like crap. And so then it, it gets harder and harder as you get more mature and older to justify supporting a company that has all these things at its fingertips, the production values, the, the international uh, connections they have with, with things like NBC. It becomes harder and harder to justify being a fan of this company, at least for me. No, I can understand and respect that. And I think as somebody who's been watching wrestling as long as the three of us have, um, I mean, we, we talked about the injury comparison between Punk and, and Cody is go and watch anything on AEW, even some of the stuff that, you know, you know, Mike, you and I have talked and we have different tastes in some wrestling, even the stuff that I'm not the biggest fan of AEW doing and or you just watch CM Punk in the ring and you see this emotion and this natural the wrestlers are enjoying themselves they're clearly having fun they're clearly the audience is alive in a way that last uh, last night we're filming this on a monday last night hell in a cell that was by no means a dead crowd but a lot of it felt like the crowd was just going through the motions that's a wwe crowd they're going to be there no matter how the product is but I, I went within a 
a, a couple weeks of, of each other, two weeks of each other, about a year ago, I went to an AW taping and a SmackDown, and it was night and day. My wife and I said the same thing. We had so much more fun at AW. The crowd was more lively. The the, the just just the the performers just seemed to be more involved and high five in the audience, and you could just feel they were enjoying themselves. And I think it's funny you talk about Vince McMahon. I want to end with this thought. You mentioned Sasha Banks and Naomi walking out. They walked out over grievances with how they were being used and the issues they had being women's tag team champions and feeling underwhelmed. The fact that you ha- that your women's tag team champions basically walked out of the company weeks ago, you haven't had an interim match, a tournament, or even put forward enough teams to make the titles matter. They've, they've put the tournament on hold. Women's titles basically don't exist right now. The way the company handled them walking out proves that the, their grievances were right. Well, I, I made a joke on social media yesterday, Dan, you might have seen it. I posted that in lieu, of the, in lieu of a tournament, the Jumping Bomb Angels are going to be reinstated as <laughs> WWE Women's Tag Team Champions because they never lost those belts. And, and you know, I made another video a couple of years ago where they were claiming that there had never been WWE Women's Tag Team Champions. But I remember watching the Glamour Girls versus the Jumping Bomb Angels on the first Royal Rumble uh, on the USA Network on the undercard of Hacksaw Duggan mm-hmm. winning the first Rumble. And gee whiz, that looked like a women's tag team title. If they want to use the asterisk that it was WWF at the time, not WWE, okay. But they never acknowledged the Jumping Bomb Angels or Lily Martin as the Glamour Girls. And uh, to me, when a company doesn't even recognize its own history, and I'm sure that a lot of people that do the writing for the WWE with the Kenneth Mobley situation we experienced a few years ago on the writing team, we know that they hire writers that don't respect or appreciate or understand the history of pro wrestling. And so, once again, when you're with that AEW crowd, you're watching a pro wrestling show, Dan. When you're watching WWE, and instead of just having normal steel turnposts, you have to have an LED screen on a turn post and you can't just have a ring apron with a banner of your company it's got to have an led screen um it just it makes you feel like you're watching a wrestle product or you know when i get harsh on social media you'll see me use the term idiot mcmarks you know because i feel like hardcore wwe apologists are idiot mcmarks who like their candy they like their idiot wrestling and that's what WWE often is. Again, sometimes they do it right, WrestleMania 22 and so forth, like I said. But a lot of times it feels like like there's a famous meme of a wrestling fan in the crowd holding up a sign. There's, there's Stephanie the guy in the crowd holding up a sign that says, I feel like you're not even trying. You know, and that's how I, I think that a lot of disgruntled wrestling fans or angry wrestling fans, if you would, these days about the wwe well and i think especially in the wwe side i think the ratings reflect that i mean the the highest rated raw in history was eight million viewers and raw's lucky to get a million and change and that was 20 years ago and i mean so we'll see uh but i mean like you said sometimes they're trying and 
and sometimes it's it's out there. But we've mentioned it before, Benny, on the show. Sometimes it hits. Uh, you during your shout out, you mentioned uh, Adam Page. I think his sixty minute draw with Brian Danielson was one of the best matches I've seen in years. Cody and Seth, really, for what it was, was phenomenal. Uh, it, it, the 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 few the few nuggets among the, among the uh, debris. But Mikey, um, as we wrap up, uh, I know you you've always got a lot going on social media in the future. What what can we see from Mike Messier coming forward? Well, I really appreciate it if everyone uh, would like to check out my stuff. Uh, www.mikemessier.com. Mike Messier, if you scroll to the bottom, there's my all my social media links. I got up there now to subscribe to Mike Messier YouTube channel. Yes, that's the name of the channel. Really proud of this novel that I published this year that my buddy uh, Benny has the forward in, uh, which is Fighter Play Basketball. It might be the greatest piece of art that I've done because I think it, it'll, it'll inspire a lot of people. It's a sports fiction book. And then uh, the Pro Wrestling Trivia, my comic book, Wrestling with Sanity graphic novel, is available on Kindle. Um, uh, if people have Kindle Unlimited, they could read all my stuff as part of their subscription to Kindle Unlimited. I've, I've put all my stuff on Kindle Unlimited. You can even find my uh, Distance from Avalon uh, book in the Jacksonville Public Library system, believe it or not. So, I mean, my stuff is out there. It's easily available to the general public. And uh, I'm just trying to do my thing. Awesome. And like he said, uh, fighter play basketball. You you mentioned it's available Kindle, so uh, Amazon. Yes, Kindle, paperback, and hardcover. And like I said, if people that like Benny, uh, they'll be appreciative because Benny's actually got the first word. He he put the advanced praise in there, so really appreciate Benny. And Benny just actually uh, gave a nice review to my pro wrestling trivia book, which is kind of interactive. That's on Amazon Kindle Vela. If you put pro wrestling trivia, smart Mike Messier, you can play some pro wrestling trivia with yourself or your wrestling buddies. There you have it. So for our friend, Mike Messier, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Sebastian. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.